Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, one, two, one, two, three, four. It's SST 196, the Husker Du land speed record. We love Husker Du. We've had them on a bunch of times before. It's a great record to end the year on. And Brent, we've got a special guest. You bet Greg Norton's on the show. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now, before we get into it, though, we should get some spiels out of the way. Take it away. Okay. I have a couple podcast shout outs, Ryan. The 33 and a third podcast based on the book series. Right. They recently had Watt on to discuss the first Ramones album. It's vintage Watt. You know, he talks about the same stuff he usually does in, in his interviews, but it's always fun to listen to him. He just gets so animated still uh-huh. when he's talking about this stuff and, you know, talking about him and D Boone in the seventies and arena rock, you know, this one's almost better because the host doesn't know Dick all about Ramones or early punk rock. So what like totally schools him schools him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the podcast, they kind of read ex- excerpts from the books with voice actors kind of portraying the band members. Not sure I'd just randomly listen to this podcast. It would have to be a good guest. Uh, but it's a Spotify original, so it you know it has a budget and everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, no matter how many times I hear Watt, his enthusiasm and nostalgia always gets me pumped. Yeah. And it just, just reminds me why I still love this stuff. Yep. Uh, another one podcast is called Badlands Sportsland. It's a true crime anthology podcast hosted hosted by Jake Brennan. You've maybe heard of or checked out his uh, podcast Disgraceland where he talks about true crime in like the music industry. Like there's ap- episodes on the Notorious B.I.G., G.G. Allen, etc. And then there's Hollywoodland which is stuff about true crime in the movie business. Uh, so you can probably deduce what Sportsland is about. Now, I'm not really a true crime or a sports fan, really. Uh, yeah, where are, you, where are you going with this? Well, I'll, I'll get to that here. So the podcast, you know, again, it's high budget. It's well produced. It's kind of done in like this narrative storytelling style. Like it's kind of scripted. So the episode I checked out is about Pete Rose. And it was written, the episode, by a resident punk rock baseball fanatic and friend of the pod. Michael T. Fournier. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, I loved the, the Pete Rose book. I think it was called uh, My Prison Without Bars, I think. Mm-hmm. I read it on my honeymoon, if you can believe it. Okay. So that's like almost 20 years ago I read. I love, yeah, I love Pete's story. That's cool. I got to check that out. Yeah, check it out, man. And lastly, Ryan, I have a rock doc update. Okay. From 1987, written and directed by Tony Gayton, I got a copy of the Athens, Georgia, Inside Out documentary. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a bonus disc on the re-release of the comp too. I told you, it's good, eh? Yeah, I'll be completely honest. I'm slightly embarrassed to admit I was unaware of this film until you mentioned it, but I just loved it, man. It's mm-hmm. already definitely of its era, as far as a documentary on music goes. It, to me, really captures the vibe of this wild artistic hub that was going on in Athens and what a kind of really special scene it was, you know, document some of the eccentric personalities around Athens and really shows you, you know, why Athens, I think. Yeah, for sure. And then there's like the amazing music, great live footage and interviews with all of the bands. Uh, It ranges 
from, you know, for me, the stuff that I'm already into, like REM, B-52s, pylon, flat duo jets, you know, to the stuff that's slightly, just slightly on my radar, like Kilkenny Cats, Love Tractor, Barbecue Killers, uh, to the bands that I didn't know anything about at all, but will definitely be diving into, like Dream So Real, Time Toy, and Squalls. First of all, Ryan, the Barbecue Killers, uh, you're super on point about that band. Awesome, hey? Yep. Uh, Flat Duo Jets, I have, you know, I have about half of their albums and a handful of Dex's solo albums, but their performances here are really remarkable. Like, the footage of De- Dex is just oh. awesome, hey? And you know, he moved to Athens, right? Yeah. Not originally from there. Yeah. Yeah, you can see why they were so influential, Flat Duo mm-hmm. Jets. And the two of them certainly found each other. Oh, yeah. You know? Crow, right? Is that the drummer? Crow? Yeah, yeah. I think so, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time Toy was a definite highlight for me. Yep. Did you know that band before? No. I, again, only when I read the book and ended up watching the documentary did I start to get way more into bands like this that I had I had no idea. Of, like Roosevelt. Yeah. Did I didn't know about Roosevelt at all, but uh, I got their LP since it's cool. Well, yeah. Again, you've got you know college rock almost with rem you know time toys post-punk flat duo jets are like super lo-fi garage blues like again just one of those scenes where all these bands could mix it up you know yeah do you think there could be a a white stripes or a black keys without flat duo jets i, don't I wonder so. I don't yeah i don't think so. so or without a deja voodoo ryan oh yes <laughs> good uh, call yeah the squalls are super great too Love Tractor is a band I've been meaning to get, you know, more into, especially since they came up on our Pell-Mell episode, which is a very apt comparison for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the soundtrack, as you mentioned, has all of these great performances on it. So just loved that documentary. Yeah, loved yeah it. it's worth, worth checking out for sure. Yep. That's it for me. What do you have? Cool. I've got some new releases, a new release roundup, last episode of the year. They're all singles though. Okay. But that doesn't hurt him at all. So the band Split Single, Jason Narducci from Bob Mould's band, they've got a new digital single out, Bitten by Sound and Nothing You Can Do to End This Love, live at Electrical Audio. Both tracks are also on Split Single's 2021 LP, their excellent record Amplificado. But these are different versions, and Dale Nixon is not on drums on these versions. Oh, okay. Word to the wise. Okay. Dale Dale's on Amplificado. He is not on this digital single. Mm-hmm. But speaking of split singles, Jay Robbins has a new split single with Her Heads on Fire from New York. I don't know anything about that band. It is limited, though, to 300. It's a pre-order from Discord. I jumped on that right away. And as usual, when I order from Discord, I filled a few holes. I picked up an All Scars record I'm missing, a French Toast single I'm missing, a Report Suspicious Behavior LP and single I'm missing. So can't wait for that Discord care package with the new Jay Robbins single to arrive in the mail. Mm-hmm. You see, Ryan, it's a good thing we're postponing the top 10. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's more to come. There's more to come, I'm sure, in the next few weeks here. Um, and then finally, another single that came out. A new tune from Conan Neutron and The Secret Friends. The track is called The Commuter. 
It is the latest track from Conan since his Dark Passengers LP, I believe. And it's the first single from the dangerous nomenclature split with erratic retaliator strategy coming in 2022. I don't know anything about that split or the band, uh, but I'm looking forward to that. I always pick up Conan stuff. And there is a Conan tie-in to this episode, isn't there, Brent? Yeah, I was going to mention it later on, but he hooked us up with Greg. Yeah, awesome. And bonus round. This is really, really hard. This is next level Mojack quiz, okay? Okay. So the Conan Neutron new single is called The Commuter. There is another tie-in with this episode. Go. The Commuter? MTC? Yes! Wow. <laughs> nice move, man. Wow. You never let me down. Yeah. You, you never let me down. Wow. I thought you. I thought that was a stumper. But that is nope. like some six degrees of innovation there. You got some Mojack mojo going on there, bro. Yep. All right. Should we get into this land speed record? I think we better. History lesson, part one. So, huge fans of Husker Du on the show, obviously. And we've had Husker Du releases on the show a bunch of times before. So, I thought I would start by a bit of a Mojack rundown, Brent. Please. Okay, so here we go. And man, I love all these records. Holy smokes. SST 20. We had the Metal Circus 12-inch on. SST 25, the 8 Miles High single with the B-side recorded in... Beautiful Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Bingo. SST 27, the Zen Arcade double LP with Paul Hilkoff as a guest on that episode. That was killer. SST 31, the New Day Rising LP. SST 51, the Makes No Sense at All single. SST 55, the Flip Your Wig LP. That was the last full length that we had. We also had Husker Du on the show on SST 13, the Blasting Concept 1 compilation with the Real World track on it. And here's another test, Brent. Who was our guest on SST 13? I'm pretty sure that song Real World was our ballot result pick. And I'm pretty sure our guest was Abe Gibson. Wow, man. Holy smokes. You're, uh, you must be really taking the ginkgo biloboba or whatever to keep your memory going. All right, SST 43, Blasting Concept 2. We had the uh, compilation-only track there from Husker Du Erase Today, which I think may have also been our ballot result. Mm. So I, I think on both of the Blasting Concepts, we picked Husker Du as our, our ballot result. Now, by the time we got to SST 55, the Flip Your Wig LP in 1985, Husker Du had also released the Statues single on Reflex in 1981, the In a Free Land 7-inch on New Alliance in 1982, and in 1983, they also released the Everything Falls Apart LP on Reflex. If you want to hear all of those tracks in one place, you can go to the Rhino Records 1992 compilation, Everything Falls Apart and more. But their first LP was this one, Land Speed Record. It came out in 1982 on New Alliance Records and in 1982 as well on Alternative Tentacles UK as Virus 25. Now, let's talk about the main sources for this episode as well. Again, some great books. This is probably one of the most documented SST bands right up there with Black Flag and, and probably the Minutemen. There is Husker Du, 
The Story of the Noise Pop Pioneers Who Launched Modern Rock by Andrew Earls. There is See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody by Bob Mould and Michael Azarad. Also by Michael Azarad, The Our Band Could Be Your Life. There's also, from 2017, The Savage Young Do box set by Numero. The excellent, excellent box set. And then, of course, we have Paul Hilkoff's Husker Du database, thirdav.com. And again, Paul was on our episode 27 for Zen Arcade. And now, again, who are Husker Du? Do you remember, Brent? Better remind me. All right. Bob Mould, guitar and vocals, Grant Hart, drums and vocals, and our guest, Greg Norton, on bass and vocals. Formed in Minneapolis, but but more accurately from St. Paul. They're really a St. Paul band. They played their first real show as Husker Du in 79. And although in their formative years, they had some pop and post-punk sensibilities, early on, one of the things they became most known for was their speed. Kind of packing, you know, like 70 minutes of music into a 30-minute set. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute here. In March of 1981, both Husker Du and Black Flag were in Chicago, where at an after-party, the Husker Dus did a bit of an audition for Black Flag. It's like, hey, you know, Black Flag's in town. You should play uh, some tunes, get to know them, show them what you're about. And they gave Black Flag a live tape. Ginn suggested that the Huskers get in touch with Watt, who was firing up New Alliance or had fired it up by then. Watt loved the live tape that Black Flag brought from Chicago. And starting in June of 81, the Huskers, so again, this is like in March of 81, they meet up with Flag in Chicago. And then starting in June of 81, the Huskers kicked off what was called their Children's Crusade Tour, where Joe Keithley from DOA helped them book their first shows outside of the U.S. They started with six nights in Calgary, Alberta at the Calgarian. Then they went to Victoria, BC, Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. In Seattle, they played with the Dead Kennedys. So they ended up going to San Francisco. They uh, went back to Reno, Nevada, played that show with DOA, Sacramento, San Francisco again, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin. And at the end of this two-month grueling tour in June and July, they planned to record their set at a homecoming gig at the 7th Street entry in Minneapolis. The Savage Young Do box set calls this a cost-effective way of laying down piles of songs they'd rehearsed ad nauseum on tour. This gig was August 15, 1981. Promoter Terry Katzman's flyers said, Husker Du returns home. And the flyer is the image. You can see it on Paul Hilkoff's website. The flyer is the image used for the back of this album cover, with the coffins in front of that Swiss Airlines jet. The night was separated into two sets to be recorded by Steve Felstead onto a four-track for about 300 bucks, 350 bucks. The first set was supposed to show the brutal speed of the band, with the second set showing the slower songs that Husker Du also had in their repertoire. They played eight more songs in the first set, and the second set is actually found on side F, of the Savage Young Do box set, just released in 2017 for the first time. Mm-hmm. The first set was mixed by Steve Felstead, and they called it Land Speed Record to reflect the two-month tour they had just before this homecoming concert. As Bob Mould put it, we covered a lot of land, we took a lot of speed, and we made a record. 
Now, there's a great account of this in the Michael Azarad book, so I'll give you a spiel out of that. Okay. So this is from Our Band Could Be Your Life. Engineer Terry Katzman was at Soundcheck and thus was the first local to hear them after they got back. Katzman was stunned by what he heard. I was about to have heart failure. I couldn't believe how fast they were, Katzman recalls. They came back a different band. Writing about the performance in the Twin Cities column of the zine Discords, Katzman exclaimed, It's hard to believe, but the only Minneapolis hardcore band have gotten even faster during their stay away. The band had plenty of slower material, but only the fast stuff got played on the Children's Crusade tour. When they opened for another band, they usually had a short time to make their point. So they always came out with both guns blazing. And when they headlined, there was usually almost nobody there. So they'd retaliate and try to drive out the few adventurous souls who'd come to see them by playing even faster, louder, and noisier than ever. Besides, they'd been playing constantly for months and had become far better musicians. And there was a point there where we were like, let's see how fast we can play, says Norton. I guess we were just trying to blow people away. Along the way, they'd witnessed speedy bands like DOA, The Farts, and The Dead Kennedys and realized that playing fast was the cool thing to do. As a result, the fast stuff got meteoric, says Hart, and the slower stuff became less important. They were also taking plenty of cheap trucker speed, but Norton insists amphetamines weren't responsible for the breakneck tempos. They took speed mostly as an appetite suppressant because they had no money for food. Even Mould admitted the resulting record was Speed for Speed's Sake. Recorded for $350, the pointedly titled Land Speed record almost completely dispensed with structure, sounding less like guitar, bass, drums, and vocals than a sustained explosion, an almost formless mass that owed much to the squalling, teeming, free jazz Hart, Mould, and Norton were listening to at the time. It sounds just like when you go to a gig and your ears are blown off, explained Mould. 17 songs in 26 minutes, Landspeed Record is a fiery admixture of adrenaline and bile, a 200-proof distillation of rage. If you listen closely, you can almost hear the sound of blood boiling. Any melody was obliterated in the cacophony, and except for occasional phrases like, it's all lies anyway, the lyrics were incomprehensible. Nice. Now, I've also got a spiel from this Going Underground book, which has um, kind of a quote from Mould at the time. This book is the uh, George Herchala book, Going Underground, American Punk, 1979 to 1992. This is a great one um, for, if you want to look up any info on this time frame with all the bands that we cover on the show. Um, here's a quote from that book. The homecoming show from the tour was the live material recorded for Landspeed Record, which they felt was something they needed to do at the time for posterity. They had been playing the songs for a couple of years now, and they thought it was time to get them recorded and call them done with. At the peak of their amphetamine gobbling mania, they found they could play the entirety of Landspeed Record in 12 minutes. <laughs> we felt we had something we could do well, Bob Mould explained in Your Flesh magazine. And the only way to do it was to go out on the road. And we felt if we didn't do it, no one else was going to help us do it. And that ties in with the land speed thing. We'd been out for two months on the road, really shoestring the whole time. And we came back and had this big gig. So we decided, what the hell? 
let's record it, and we did. The tour was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol and not much food. It also goes on to explain how, because they didn't have much money to do it on Reflex, it was put out on New Alliance. New Alliance was run by Mike Watt, who really liked Husker Du, and the label had money at the time to fund it. Hmm. You know what I was thinking about, Ryan, while you were just saying that is, you, you know, you said something about the speed with, you know, DOA and... and Dead Kennedys. And, yeah. What about the Neos? From Victoria, BC? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if Husker saw them, hey? I mean, do you think they were pioneers with the speed? I feel like they kind of were. Neos? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And just like, like you're verging on blast beats at this speed, right? Yeah. I remember uh, Josh Hayden from Treacherous saying to me one time that we, he can't believe that we don't talk about the Neos more. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, like, I think he was a big fan of their... Yeah. You know, I remember him saying something like, I couldn't believe they were able to play that fast. Yeah. yeah. Their stuff just got all re-released though, right? On, was it Supreme Echo? Yeah, I think that's why he messaged like, you know, how have you guys not talked about the news oh, reissue? I think it was Rob Wright from No Means No produced one, if not two of their singles too, way back when in Victoria. Yeah. I, I feel like they were one of the earliest bands just playing unbelievably fast. Agreed. I wonder, I don't know though, did they ever make it off the island? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Josh knew about them. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is, did they get, did they ever cross paths with Husker Du in 1981? Yeah. I know that, I don't think Husker played with them when nope. they were in Victoria, but I don't know. I wonder about that. Did their single make it off the island yeah. in, in, in the early eighties? I don't know. All right, well, continuing on, as mentioned in that Going Underground excerpt, the tapes were sent to SST and Mike Watt since the Husker Du guys didn't have funds to put it out on their own Reflex record label. Watt and D. Boone, when they received it, they loved it. They said it sounded like really fast Blue Oyster Cult. Landspeed Record became New Alliance's seventh release, NAR007, and you can actually see this number on the wing of the airplane on the Metal Circus album cover. In exchange, later on, the Husker Du guys put out the Minutemen Tour Spiel EP on Reflex. This record hit shelves in January 1982, and here's an excerpt from the Flex book, just to show what this record meant when people started to get it. And of course, this Flex book, it really has a bit of a a UK influence focus on this quote. So check this out. Husker Du's debut LP is a live album. This may now be seen as an oddity or footnote in their catalog by many fans. But when this record came out in 1982, we were absolutely blown away by its speed and power. And the fact that it was one of very few American records issued in the UK by Alternative Tentacles made it a hugely influential record for the emerging European hardcore scene. The songs were completely different to almost anything else they recorded in a raging full-speed hardcore mode. The band seems to be determined to just play the fastest hardcore punk humanly possible, but you can still sense their trademark Minneapolis sound here and there. 
The sound quality is good and clear. A lot of articles disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound quality is good and clear, but the playing is a bit sloppy and chaotic. I really wish they had recorded some more of these songs in the studio. Only a few made it onto Everything Falls Apart. A classic hardcore album. Well, at least for me. And that's the author of the, the Flex book. And, you know, this is not my favorite Husker Du. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking this week. Like, I've always been more of a flip your wig, candy apple gray era fan. Yeah. So I was really having a good time, like, doing what I never do, which is, I mean, I've had this record forever, but it's not one that I go back to. It is my least listened to Husker Du LP, for sure. Yeah, mine too. For sure. And so it was really interesting to go back and like try and listen to the songs and decipher it i gotta admit like way way back when listening to it a few times over the years it's kind of like i can't even tell what's going on you know (laughs) i need something i need i need something a bit more decipherable but um it's very cool to check out this week and uh, to kind of get at you know the story how they kind of you know the honorary Canadians made their way back home and played this amazing gig. And they had the two sets. The second set is finally out there for us to listen to. It's a great story now for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like, just like I've had this on the, I have the SST CD of this and I've had it forever. And I think kind of, you know, the whole thing about it just being two tracks, two tracks yeah. is maybe something that put me off of it in my mm-hmm. younger years. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I've got I've got the new Alliance LP and the SST CD and it is a a way cooler listen on vinyl for sure. Yeah, I bet it is. I yeah. would I would say. Ryan, let's kick it over to Greg. Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Greg Norton. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Now, I want to talk to you about Land Speed Record, but before we get into that, I want to go way back to high school when did you start playing okay. bass uh were you in a band in high school uh i got a, my first bass for my 14th birthday and i took some bass lessons while i was in, uh was in high school but never really was never in a band so who's to do was actually my first band although grant and i uh before Husker officially formed we we uh grant made up a business card that said uh, the Electra Cutes, uh, which we, that was our, our fake band that we had. It was just Grant and I, we would play uh, uh, music in, in my basement. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Husker was my first band. When you're getting into music in high school, what was kind of the first stuff you were getting into? Yeah, I had very diverse musical uh, tastes and interests. So it's, uh, I worked downtown St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, in a movie theater as an usher, uh, actually when I was 14 and, uh, became really good friends with, uh, this guy that worked at the record store across the alley. It's, uh, uh, a guy named JC who went and ends up being, you know, a, a lifelong friend and, and mentor. Uh, but, uh, you know, really got into a lot of different stuff. So, yeah, early, early seventies. I mean, there were a lot of lot of really good records that came out, and a lot of good bands that started back then. So, mm-hmm. but also got introduced to jazz and uh, electronic music, and 
world music and, and uh, a lot of, of different things. You know, my group of friends in high school, a, a, a large chunk of, of those friends were kind of into, um, I guess, more kind of mainstream stuff. Although I did uh, meet uh, someone in, in school who was, who was kind of pretty cutting edge, uh, uh, who had the, like the first Ultravox album, you uh-huh. know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in 19, but uh, that come out in 76, maybe. Mm-hmm. So after, um, after I got out of high school, uh, ended up getting a job in a record store and my friend JC, who I hadn't seen in a few year, years was, uh, working there and, um, it's kind of right as all the punk stuff was being released and, and that was really an eye opener and just, you know, kind of really blew me away. And, and, uh, Grant and I both, uh, had a voracious appetite to consume whatever we could get our hands on. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming at this point it was more probably kind of like the British stuff, like the sex pistols and the damned and these kinds of bands. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, the Ramones, uh, uh, the Ramones were out there, uh, you know, actually Sire Records, you know, they put out that, uh, they had that whole campaign of like, you know, the new wave, get behind it before it gets past you, which was kind of a ridiculous slogan, but it was uh, the Saints, their first record, the Dead Boys, uh, Young, Loud and Snotty, the Ramones, their first album. And I and talking heads. So, uh, you know, that was there were definitely a lot of, you know, uh, American and, and international bands that that also got our attention as well. Like I said, we had a, a voracious appetite for it. And whatever was we could get our hands on, we would we would uh, pick it up. Um, well, Grant and I actually went. And saw Paraubu at uh, the Longhorn in Minneapolis in 1978. Oh wow! Uh, on right, right when their first record came out, and a local Minneapolis band, uh, the Suicide Commandos, were were also signed to Blank Records. That was, uh, I think, Paraubu was Blank Double O One, and the Commandos' make a record was Double O Two. Well, you mentioned you you know you had a voracious appetite for music. It seems like. I don't know if all these stores were kind of around at the same time, but just reading about all these stores in the Twin Cities, like uh, Melody Lane, the Acre Woods, Northern Lights, Hot Licks, Cheapo. Tell me about the importance of some of these stores. Uh, Yeah, basically it's like all of these stores, uh, coexisted uh melody lane and uh cheapo records were owned by the the same guy and um melody lane was the record store that i that i got hired at and was working at eventually grant got hired there and then uh cheapo was a little tiny shop that they had on the McAllister uh college campus in saint paul and that's where uh you know we end up meeting bob Mm-hmm. when Bob comes to Minnesota to go to college. <clears throat> Northern Lights came along a, a couple of years after that, and actually uh, I ended up working at Northern Lights, and uh, uh, JC was moved over to Northern Lights as well. 
it was John Carnahan, the owner, that uh, gave Husker our first rehearsal space in the basement of the record store uh, in 1979. But really probably the most important store uh, during this, this era was a uh, shop in South Minneapolis called Orfolk Jokopas. Mm-hmm. Um, Orfolk, uh, as everybody just referred to it as, was kind of like, you know, I mean, that was the hub. They were the ones that were getting in all the imports. They were the ones that always had, you know, uh, the latest records coming in. They they did a lot of in-stores and record signings. And uh, Peter Jesperson, who was the manager of the, of the shop, also was a uh, DJ at the Longhorn. So he would spin a lot of records uh, there between sets at shows and, uh, Terry Katzman, who ultimately went on to uh, record a lot of our early shows and become a very good friend of ours, uh, was also worked at Orfolk. You know, the only store that wasn't really around it at that point would, would have been Three Acre Wood, because Three Acre Wood was, you know, that was the shop uh, from my high school days. Right. Okay, so the first time, I think, that you meet Bob is when you're going to go see the Ramones opening for Foreigner of all bands. Uh, that is correct. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The Ramones did a, did a, uh, U.S. tour opening for Foreigner. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, we, we put that on our calendar and, and, uh, Grant and I, and, uh, it's like, Oh, I got, you know, this friend of mine that I met at the record store, Bob is going to come to, and that's like the first time I had met Bob. It was before Thanksgiving in 1978, and my mom asked him, uh, so, Bob, you going home for, for Thanksgiving for the holiday? And he's like, oh, no, I'm probably just going to stay stay around here. And she's like, well, what, what are you doing for on Thanksgiving? He's like, I'll probably just sit around in my dorm. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you're, you can come here and have Thanksgiving dinner with us. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. It was like the first time I had met the guy, and I'm like, oh. Okay, <laughs> I guess you're coming to my house for Thanksgiving. Yeah, and uh, you know, and then it was a couple of months later that, well, actually, probably about maybe just a little bit over a month later when uh, the uh, the whole band thing kind of fell together, and uh, you know, the three of us played for the first time. Uh, Grant's drum kit was in my basement and uh, I had my bass set up and Grant brought Bob over and he's like, oh, well, hey, let's jam on some Ramon tunes. And and uh, Bob and Grant were like, oh, you know, Greg, Greg can handle this. He, he, he can do, he can play the bass in this, this band. That's, and uh, uh, from there, the three of us went over and uh, had a fourth person, Charlie Pine on keyboards who kind of put that first gig together and uh we were just a covers band we did nothing but uh uh like two or three sets of covers hmm. uh and we had two shows and uh so we had you know our first couple of shows actually we we got paid better than we probably got paid for a couple of years <laughs> that, so. do you remember some of the songs you were playing yeah it was a pretty eclectic mix um uh, we did some, 
Betty Cochran and Jean Vincent. We did uh, Para Ubu. We did the Buzzcocks. We did some Ramones. We did uh, the Velvet Underground. It was, it was like I said, it, oh, uh, some Rock Pile and some Elvis Costello. Right. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very eclectic mix. Definitely not top forty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you remember some of the first songs that you wrote as a group, or that you know one of the three of you brought in? We started. So after after that. Uh, those first two shows with uh, with Charlie, Bob Grant and I uh, started rehearsing in the Northern Lights basement and just started you know jamming and, and writing tunes. Probably the uh, uh, the first song that we that we named was uh, Sex Dolls, and we called it Sex Dolls because we thought it sounded like a cross between the Sex Pistols and the New York Dolls. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, later, then Grant wrote lyrics for it. Uh, the first song I wrote was MPC uh, about our the Metropolitan Transit Commission, which was our you know the local authority that that ran the buses in uh, the Twin Cities. And you know, really, we just started. Uh, we we had a great setup. The record shop closed up at nine p.m. Uh, there were no neighbors to speak of, uh, so no, nobody could, you know, call in any noise complaints. And uh, we would rehearse like every night. We would just get together and play and, and just have fun and, and write music. And uh, that was like the, the nucleus. Um, that was that was the hub, right? So and I was just three guys like going, "Hey, we got a rock and roll band," and and, uh, and we kept coming up with stuff and. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, we did play a third show with Charlie Pine, uh, on April 20th of, uh, 1979. And that technically was the show where, um, uh, we played our first Husker songs together, uh, at the, at the end of, um, we probably had like 10 minutes left, the, the, People were telling us, oh, you guys still have time. Get up and play. And we had already played all of our songs. So Bob Grant and I jumped up and it's like, well, let's do our songs. And Charlie had no idea that we had even written these. And uh, so that was the first time that uh, Husker performed as, as the trio that would, you know, go on. Later on, Bob gets done with his uh, school year at McAllister and tells us like, well, we don't have any shows coming up. I'm just going to, I think I'm going to go home to Malone, New York for the, for the summer. Right. And, uh, and you know, Grant and I were like, no, you can't. Oh man, you got to stick around. We, we got this band going. So uh, <laughs> like the next day, Grant shows up and he's like, Hey, we got to load up all the gear. We need to get over the Longhorn. We've got an audition. So we like, piled all, all the gear into uh, Grant's um, uh, car and drive over and we set up at the Longhorn. It's like at the middle of lunch and there's like a businessman's buffet lunch going on in the sidebar. And, and uh, we start playing and Hartley Frank, the, the guy that ran the club comes out and he's like, 
Dave, stop the racket. What are you guys doing? And Grant's like, oh, we're auditioning. And he's like, fine, fine. You can play here next Friday. Now just shut up and get the hell out of here. <laughs> and so that was how we got our first gig at the, at the Longhorn. And then later it turns out, you know, I, well, obviously we didn't have an audition. Grant just told us we did so that we would all go along with it. But it worked. Right. <laughs> so Hart, Hartley gave us the gave us our first gig. For the rest of that summer, it seemed like, uh, you know, we would pick up the local uh, arts and entertainment uh, newspaper that came out weekly, and we would see, oh, hey, looks like they're playing at the Longhorn, because Hartley put us in the ad. And uh, we found out we had gigs uh, <laughs> like that a couple of times. Um, you know, and, and those were a lot of opening slots, a lot of, you know, first on or second on out of, like, four band uh, lineups mm -hmm. and, uh, they, they paid a whopping $25 a set. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the Longhorn was, uh, you know, uh, definitely a place where, you know, we, you know, Bob and, and all of us consider that was our first real gig because, you know, the Longhorn was, was the club in, in Minneapolis. It was like the, you know, every, everybody, played there i mean eventually there were other clubs that popped up like duffy's and right. and then of course um you know the seventh street entry opened up and then uh the longhorn kind of changed uh and and so everything the whole scene shifted from the longhorn over to the entry right. um, once the entry opened do you recall any of the the bigger bands that you would have opened for? Like, I know you opened for, say, Mission of Burma, uh, Wayne Kramer and Johnny Thunders. Yep, yeah, so the uh, Johnny Thunders and Wayne Kramer, their band, uh, Gang Wars, we, that was our first show that we played in the big room, hmm. uh, the main room at First Ave, is, is we opened up for them. Um, in the entry, yeah, we opened up for uh, Mission of Burma, and uh, uh, actually, Leading, yeah, over the the winter of 1980 and and through the spring of 81, we opened up for um, the Vancouver bands uh, DOA and the Subhuman, mm -hmm. and uh, and both those guys, you know, both those bands really loved us, and and actually it was uh, DOA's manager Ken Lesser. It was like, you know, hey, if you guys need any help, like getting shows booked in Canada, just give me a call. So we decided to set out and do our first big tour to go west. And um, our first stop was a uh, seven nights at the Calgarian Hotel. Yeah. In beautiful uh, Calgary, Alberta, in a part of town that they tore down to make pretty for the Olympics. Right. Yeah, um, my yeah. co-host Ryan lives in Calgary, so I have to ask about your recollections of, of playing there and hanging out at the, I'm sure you probably stayed, well, I think you stayed at the Calgarian, but it... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a one room that was upstairs, actually it was like directly over the uh, uh, the front entry way, so we'd get done with our show, uh, they'd give us a case of beer, we'd go up to our room, um, I guess in Canada, that's a two, four pack, right? Yep. <laughs> and, uh, we'd go up to our, uh, our room and we'd sit there and, uh, watch, uh, 
all the the bar patrons spill out on on into the street and get in fights. That was that was our entertainment for the rest of the night. <laughs> when I think about er, this early era of Husker Du, actually really reminds me of DOA in the sense that you kind of started out, you know, more of a late seventies punk and rock band, but then really, you know, got into the the speed end of it and the you know what came to be known as hardcore very similar yeah well yeah i mean uh doa's record hardcore 81 right yeah so, you know it it's one of those things it's like the early hoosker stuff we definitely i would say initially we were very influenced by a lot of the, the british uh, bands particularly like you know the bands that were coming out of manchester mm-hmm. and uh but also, you know, the New York, uh, the New York punk scene. And it was, uh, uh, I remember when, when the Black Flag Jealous Again record came out and Bob was just really blown away by it, you know. And, you know, we always said like, oh, well, you know, we're, uh, you know, we want to play faster than the Ramones and we want to play faster than the Dickies. And then, you know, when, we heard hardcore. It was like, Oh wow, we can still even go faster yet. You know? So, uh, really, you know, that, that very first tour, which we, we, um, we dubbed it the children's crusade actually while we were in Calgary, because we're, you know, had a, had a few, few days there and also trying to figure out like how to get people down to, to come to our shows. Mm-hmm. The first couple of nights, the management, like they didn't like us and they wanted to fire us and kick us out and uh, some local uh, local guys on the scene with that had bands they're like no 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 give these guys a chance they're really good and you know we like them and you know there'll be more people here this weekend and and uh, you know the last the last few nights were great but anyway we're we're you know sitting around in Calgary and we're like oh tour needs a name and we need to make flyers so we came up with the children's crusade exactly why i couldn't necessarily tell you but um you know we we went to uh you know a local place to make copies and and made a bunch of flyers and went around town and put them up and and uh from there we went to vancouver and actually spent uh uh, a couple of weeks in Vancouver, we uh, stayed with Dave Gregg at his place. Right. Uh, Dave Gregg from DOA uh, played a show with the Subhumans over in Victoria on Canada Day. Uh, we played the Smiling Buddha a couple of times, and then ended up heading down to Seattle. And uh, we ended up in Seattle for a couple of weeks too, right. um, or, or at least over a week, anyway. Uh, and it was in Seattle where we meet Jello Biafra. Uh, we basically talk our way on onto uh, a Dead Kennedys bill. So it was Dead Kennedys DOA, a local Seattle band called The Farts, and uh, and we we somehow convinced the promoters to put us on first, and. Uh, that's the first time Jello Biafra had ever seen us. And, and he was like, wow, it's like you guys come down to San Francisco and I'll, I'll help help you get some shows. 
So after uh, Seattle, we, we had one show lined up in Portland, uh, which I know is circulated as uh, like a, a bootleg of a radio program, but there's some question as to whether or not it was ever actually broadcast or, mm-hmm. uh, or if it was a board tape. Nobody can quite say for sure. But, uh, but anyway, we end up coming down to San Francisco, uh, you know, Biafra, we stayed at, at his place. Biafra gets us uh, a couple of shows at the Mabue Gardens. Uh, we end up playing, go, driving up to Sacramento, doing a show with BOA, coming back down to San Francisco. Uh, we played some shows with Flipper. Uh, and this whole time we kept trying to, uh, get something going in, in LA. And I had, uh, I can't remember necessarily who gave me Mike Watt's phone number, but Mike Watt was the guy that, you know, that somebody's like, here, call, call Watt. So he'll, he'll, he'll try to get you something. So, uh, talked with Mike Watt a couple of times, had sent him, I know we had sent, sent him some live tape that we had done and he kept trying to get us, shows but he's like yeah la is such a weird scene man it's like there's no real cohesive like you know club scene down here and and uh you know he tried for several weeks to, to get get us on some bills down there nothing ever came of it so you know we basically at this point had been staying at the office uh for you know a couple weeks maybe three weeks I was like, well, we just can't keep staying here. We should, we should head back. So, uh, we're, we got to book a show in Chicago at O'Banion's. And then the next night we booked the seventh street entry. And that was August uh, 15th of 81. And that's, that was our homecoming coming gig after being out on the road for all these months. Right. So, so you're road and, you're road tested by this point. Yep, and you know, and we're like, wow, you know, it's we we should document this. We should let's record this. So, you know, we we made some phone calls, and Terry Katzman lines up uh, another friend of ours, Steve Felstead, who who goes on to you know be our engineer for pretty much the rest of the, uh, or not the rest, but a lot of the Husker records from uh, New Day Rising on. Yeah. Everything that we recorded in Minneapolis. And uh, he sets, you know, he we get a four-track recorder, reel-to-reel, and we get that set up, and we show up at the entry, and and uh, and we come out, and we, we play Land Speed Record. Right. And the crowd was like, people were like, what the hell happened to you guys? You know, because we were fast and tight when we left, but not as fast and tight as we were when we came back. Some people didn't like it. Some people were like, wow, you guys have totally ruined yourself. Why, why are you, why did you go hardcore? You know? And other people were like, holy crap, that was amazing. So it was, it was really kind of an interesting reaction, but, uh, you know, we we do we did come back out and play a second set of a lot of the uh, you know the, the quote unquote slower material, 
really, you know, land speed record was, was kind of the, um, you know, us making a, throwing down a statement at the end of that tour. You know, it's like, well, yeah, we were, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely not the same band that we were when we left three months ago. Right. Do, do you think you, when you set out to record it, you knew that it would, you know, you would release it? Well, we knew that we wanted to, you know, we were recording it and yeah, we wanted to put it out. Uh, we initially had sent a copy of it to S, uh, SST mm-hmm. to see if they'd be interested in doing anything with it. And Joe Carducci, who was running the label, uh, didn't feel that that would be the best introduction of the band to the, uh, to the world on SST. But he's like, Hey, you know what? Um, Mike Watt, he goes, I think, you know, Mike, you talked to him on the phone. He's, he's got a record label called new Alliance. Let me talk to him. And then he, uh, Carducci calls us back and he's like, Oh yeah. Watt, Watt said, go put it out. He said he didn't, he doesn't even have to hear the tapes. They're just going to put it out. (laughs) So, uh, we sent, uh, sent Mike Watt, everything and and uh new alliance put it out and this was before we even you know meet meet all these guys so uh on our next tour west was the first time that we actually played in los angeles and um that's uh the trip where we recorded everything falls apart uh but that's all you know that's when we meet you know watt and d boone and george and uh the meat puppets and that whole cast of characters that, you know, was in the SST universe out there. Right. So when you're writing out the set list for this, for this show, you're kind of writing out the first set. I'm assuming like, this is the set that's going to, like you said, you know, show everybody who we are now. Yeah. Well, you know, as we were on, on the road, uh, we, we kind of got into this thing where, you know, audience response to us wasn't always necessarily all warm and fuzzy and people didn't like initially like love us. So we thought we should come out and just pummel them with, with, uh, with speed and, and fury. And we kind of got into a thing where we started grouping songs into groups of three. Okay. And uh, we'd be like, okay, let's do these three, do these three. And we would just do them back to back without stopping. Yep. And then it just got into a thing where we wouldn't say anything to the audience. Uh, we would just get up and play the music. And even in, in between those three song um, sets uh, or groupings, there'd be a very brief you know, stop. So it was almost like, you know, everything's just bang, 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 bang. And uh, that's kind of just how, how we developed and, and how it, it went on. But then eventually it's like, it, you know, you know, like I said, at, at first people would be like, whoa, what's this? And then by the end of the set, they were like pummeled into submission and they loved us. Right. <laughs> so, when I hear this, I, I can't even picture you like writing a set list. I feel like, you know, by the time you got back from the tour, this was the set, it, you know, it was just what you did every night. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. And no. Um, we did like, you know, we would, we would change the set up, you know, I mean, there were a few songs that would get rotated in and out, but I guess, you know, the, the, that group that is land speed record, I guess did kind of pretty much become one big long set. So I don't know, maybe it was the, uh, in a God of the Vita I mean, you became known later on for, well, and I'm assuming during this era as well for, you know, the prolific songwriting and the, just the number of songs. And we heard some, you know, stuff on the Numero box set. I'm just curious, like, how many songs do you think just came and went during this era that were never even documented? Oh, there were, yeah, a lot. You know, I'm sure probably dozens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one of those things, is, you know, like like I was saying with the uh, our rehearsal arrangement at Northern Lights, it was perfect. I mean, we were literally play every, get together and play every night. And, and during those, those, uh, during those nights, we would, I mean, that's really Grant and Bob, you know, all three of us, but really Grant and Bob were, were really learning how to write songs and getting really good at it and proficient at it. Uh, you know, Bob kind of got to a point where he would have, you know, a dozen ideas a week and we would just pretty much throw everything at the wall and, you know, see what, see what would stick. You know, there's some songs that never made it out of the rehearsal space. There are some songs that maybe got played at a sound check and never made it to the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were sound songs that, um, you know, maybe got recorded or played in a set once. And, and um, you know, a couple of those, you know, I've got a lot of old, old uh, you know, a lot of cassettes from back then. And you listen to some of them and you're like, wow, what in the hell is that? It's <laughs> like, well, I guess I can see why we never played that song again, you know, type <laughs> of thing. Um, but it was, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, like I said, it's, we were getting better as songwriters, getting better as performers. Um, you know, we just getting better at figuring out what worked live and, and what didn't. So, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of stuff fell by the way. A lot of it just lost to, to time. So, so for the four track recording of this, was that patched right into the board? Do you know? I believe so. Um, not exact. I'm trying to think. You know, I think yeah. I think they had one, one channel was uh, drums, one channel bass, one channel guitars, and one channel vocals. Mm. So. And and those tapes were eventually stolen, at least for the first set. Well, the uh, the first set was the uh, the record that came out, Land yeah. Speed record. Yeah. The second set, that's still a mystery as to what ever happened to those tapes. There again, I think, you know, between Bob moving, Grant moving, you know, the, the tapes just got lost in the shuffle somewhere. Right. I don't know if they were actually, I don't think that they were actually stolen uh, because supposedly, I believe, what is on the numero set is the, that second set was from the tape of that night. So, hard to say. Do you 
have any idea where Grant sourced, I'm assuming it was Grant sourced the artwork for Landspeed. Yeah. So, um, Grant, you know, Grant was, had, had a, a really good, you know, um, artistic eye and he also had access to a copy machine that we used to make a lot of flyers and, and things like that. I'm not exactly sure, you know, if we we're putting together the artwork and he came up with that, with the, uh, with those images like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I don't really recall what the, uh, thought process was behind the imagery of, mm-hmm. of the cover. Not like we were returning heroes or anything like that. Right. But uh, land speed record definitely, you know, we, we all thought that was a great title because we felt that, you know, we were definitely set the land speed record with that one. So. Right. Uh, the songs that you wrote and, and sang on this record, MTC, don't have a life. Let's go die. How were you writing these songs at the time? This is just you writing, you know, writing them and bringing them into the group. In this early stage, definitely it was it was a group effort. So, you know, like I said, we would be down in the basement of Northern Lights, and we would be throwing out ideas, uh, be it you know riffs or lyrics or whatever. Uh, so. A lot of it was it just happened. You know, a lot of it, um, you know, Land Speed record was definitely a, everything on that record, like it says on the record, all songs by Hooster Do. Um, you know, it, it didn't it didn't have individual writer credits until after the band broke up. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like M- MPC was just something that, that came to me one day while I was, actually working upstairs at the record shop and watching the buses go by, you know, you know, let, let, let's go die was, uh, kind of inspired by, uh, draft, the draft lottery, uh, which of course we don't have a draft lottery right now. They should bring that back. Um, <laughs> uh, make, make rich, rich kids go, go fight wars too. And yeah. Um, uh, don't have a life. That was kind of a anti-love song. Turning to some more recent stuff, I want to I want to know about Ultra Bomb, another Canadian connection there. If it wasn't for COVID, would you have the album have already come out and would you have been playing shows? Uh, there, well, so the the band itself, I, we didn't get together until um, the band wasn't created until August of this of uh, this year. So, you know, basically, I got a text message from Finney going like, Hey, I got this crazy idea. It's like, let's put together an uh, international punk rock band with, you know, you, you, me and Jamie Oliver from the UK subs, you know, and at first it was like, how the hell is that going to work? And then uh, the more we talked about it, it's like, well, yeah, let's do this. So, you know, I, I flew to Berlin in September. We recorded, we wrote and recorded uh, 10 songs over a weekend. The record has turned out fantastic. Um, True North Records is going to be releasing it uh, early next year. And we were supposed to play our first shows here just uh, uh, at the beginning of November. There was actually a snafu with the, uh, with the visa process for Jamie getting a visa from England to Canada. 
that's the monkey wrench there. It wasn't, wasn't anything COVID related. Oh, okay. But, but, uh, we're, we're, we'll be playing our first shows, uh, in Canada. They've been rescheduled for the end of February. Uh, we have shows booked for Ireland, Scotland, and England for the end of March, early April. Uh, and then the plan is to play, uh, Europe, do festivals in July and, uh, play some shows in the United States in next fall. Mm. That must be exciting. I, I mean, I know you've been active in music, but I feel like that's probably the most extensive, at least touring, that, that you'll have done in quite a while. Oh, yeah, definitely. It'll be the, uh, let's see, I played some shows in Canada in like 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, a short run with uh a guy named Sonny Vincent, and he had a band called Shotgun Rationale. Yep. Uh, who were rather popular in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and, and interestingly enough, Bob Stimson actually uh, from the Replacements played with with Sonny as well. Yep. Not on not on the tour that I did, but uh, so that this will be the first time I've played Canada since then. It'll be my first time playing in Europe since Husker Du broke up. Wow. So 35 years or whatever. Right. Uh, I have to ask you, because we, my co-host Ryan and I just love the the Gang Font record featuring Interloper. Oh, nice. I seem to recall Uh hearing you mention at one point that there is a second one that's never come out. I'm wondering if if I'm remembering that right. There is a second one. Yeah. Uh, So we, we did write and record second album which i think is a really fantastic record i still listen to it occasionally uh we just need to find somebody to put it out i'm not exactly sure why we haven't but you know dave dave king is still extremely busy with with all of his projects and the band plus continues to you know tour the world um brian nichols replaced craig taborn uh, on keyboards uh, he's also very busy, and then Eric Brodsky, you know, he's got a couple of projects as well. Plus, he just released a, uh, a solo record uh, not that long ago. But yeah, I would love to get that record out. Um, well, let's see, uh, the the working title was "We Will Not Be in, Imprisoned by Pictorial Space Frames." <laughs> love that. <laughs> yeah, but that was yeah, ten songs. Um, a really great record. I would love to get that out at some point. We like to tell people that, that we've been, we've been cellaring it like a fine wine. It's almost ready for the, for consumption. <laughs> All right. And then I'm wondering what the status of is of the Longhorn tonight, double LP. Well, uh, right now that's still kind of, um, that, that is in a, in a gray area. I don't have anything else to say about that except that we don't have any production dates gotcha or are on any schedules at the moment there just seems to be uh, some unexplained delays and approvals okay fair enough where can people go to check out ultra bomb is there a website i'm sure there's a facebook page uh yes there's a facebook page and uh we also have a website uh ultra Ultra Bomb. Well, I know it says it on the Facebook page. I, I'm 
can't think if it's Ultra Bomb Music or Ultra Bomb Band. It might be ultrabombmusic.com. And as soon as we have uh, something to share with the world musically, uh, we will we'll certainly get, you know, uh, try to get something out there. Uh, like I said, True North will be putting the record out next year. And uh, as soon as we can share something, we will. Yeah. Jamie's also has some ideas for some videos that we'll be working on. And, uh, and ideally, actually, I, I think next year could be a very productive year for the band. We'll probably record a second album. Right on. And uh, we'll just see where it goes. That's awesome. I feel like you're you're practically Canadian, Greg. <laughs> you, you know, we've you know, talked... It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny when... Uh, uh, so the first time that we're down in L.A., and uh, and somebody's like, oh, so where are you guys from? And they're like, oh, we're from Minnesota. Right. Oh, that's in Canada, right? <laughs> like, yeah, might as well be. So I'd be happy to be an honorary Canadian. Yeah, well, in in our books, you are. We've talked a lot on the show about you know those Winnipeg gigs, and and now we're talking about Calgary, and so that's pretty pretty awesome yep. for us. Well, and uh, there you go. We'll be, we'll be playing more Canadian shows next early next year looking forward to it thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it yeah thanks it was good talk thanks all right awesome great to hear the story of the tour right from greg himself and you know it definitely sounds like it was an adventure for sure definitely ambitious Mm -hmm. uh not at all you know we take a lot of pride in our canadian hardcore history not at all surprised to hear how you know Joey had a part in kind of helping out the guys, how they uh, spent a week in, in uh, Calgary. Don't forget, too, the uh, Another State of Mind documentary if yeah. you want to see some more classic Canadian, and in, in particular, Calgary, Alberta, hardcore history there, uh, the Another State of Mind documentary. Yeah, Calgary was uh, ground level for, for hardcore, for sure. It's a great place geographically, yeah. you know, like... If, if you're going to pop up into Canada from the U.S., this is a good place to be. It's kind of like the place that you could pivot from in or out of if you were heading up the West Coast. Um, but very rarely would you head due east and go through Saskatchewan and Manitoba towards Ontario. You would dip right down to the States yeah. and and pop back up on the eastern side. Hey, Ryan, uh, a few things I wanted to just mentioned from the interview he he talks about jc in the interview yeah ryan's holding up the cd single right now that i am about to mention it's jc is john clegg who passed away on february 18th 2008 uh husker du released a three song live ep in 2008 on reflex called live featuring jc and it has john on sax uh, recorded at duffy's and goofy's upper deck in 82 83 He's described as a somewhat eccentric but much-loved character in the local music scene who was particularly fond of, pl- of playing with Husker Du. Grant Hart does the liner notes to that live featuring JC, and it, I'll just give you a few excerpts from it that I pulled out. Uh, JC worked at Melody Lane Records with Bill, Greg, and I when we were in or just out of high school. JC had a cat named Bub, short for Beelzebub. JC played... Alto, tenor, and baritone sax. JC was beat, but not a beatnik. JC hosted some of the best parties ever when he lived 
on a hobby farm in Elmo Lake, or in Lake Elmo. JC introduced me to Jack Kerouac and Sun Ra. JC tells a story like nobody else. JC has influenced my life and character in a million positive ways. JC is, was, and always will be. There's more, but that's kind of just the, the stuff I pulled out of there. Yeah, only 500 made of the CD too. Yeah. Definitely a, a, a loving tribute from uh, the Husker Du guys for JC, their buddy. Yeah. They're interesting versions, right? It's basically versions of the songs, Drug Party, What's Going On, where they basically create some room for JC just to give her on the sax. It's cool. Yeah. He mentions the song Sex Dolls in the interview. He thinks is one of the first songs they wrote. You can hear that uh, as part of that second set on the uh, Numero box set. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentions the show in Portland that and that it was bootlegged. It was July 13th, 1981 at the Euphoria Tavern. You can find copies of that. Uh, there's also another bootleg called the Children's Crusade, which has a, a Dirk Dirksen intro. So it's definitely from the <laughs> Mabuhe. Uh, if you listen to it, he goes, he says in the intro, intro, Jello Biafra, while touring in the Northwest, ran into these people and asked me to book them. So here they are. Yeah, I've got that one. Yeah. Any intro from Dirk is worth hanging on to. For sure, yeah. My favorite Dirk Dirksen thing... I think is on a DOA bootleg where at the end where he's going, all right, everybody, time to get out. Please try to resist the urge to throw yourself into a reciprocal with the rest of the trash on your way out the door. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got a bootleg. I'm pretty sure it's a bad brains one. Maybe I think where, where that same kind of, he says the same thing. So that must've been a common catchphrase by Dirk I don't know uh, I like how he says in the interview Land Speed Record was us making a statement at the end of that tour we're not the same band we were when we left mm-hmm. uh, only to change right after yeah for sure uh, I like how if I understood this right uh, Watt agreed to put this out without even hearing it is what I read and then uh, he hadn't even met the band yet yeah one thing I found super interesting Ryan I don't know if you knew this, you probably did. I, and maybe I did, and I just forgot that he played with Sonny Vincent. I know we've talked about the Bob Stinson connection, but... Greg Norton? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is he on, on any of the records? I don't think he is. Hang on a second. I'm. It was Shotgun Rationale, right? Yeah. Yeah, not Spite. That's the one that and has Rats Spite's Scabies on Spite's like only, you know, five years old or whatever. That's a great record, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah. That has Rats Scabies. Shotgun Rationale, at least the one that I pulled out really quick here, Roller Coaster, it has a guy named Chris Romanelli on bass. Hmm. Let me just see here. Yeah, he may be, but um, didn't jump out at me. Yeah, probably going to have some Sonny Vincent in either my top 10 or my honorable mentions, Ryan. There's a little bit of a spoiler for you. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it the Model pri- Model Prisoners re-release? We'll no. Just, we'll just see. We'll just see. <laughs> I love that Model Prisoners re-release with uh, Bob Stinson, man. That is some good stuff. I love anything Sonny Vincent, too. Yeah, me too, man. You want to talk about this record? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so let me get you a bit of a Spaceman Spiel stage setting, okay? Yeah. Husker Du, Land Speed Record. 
before the rest of the world knew what was going on, get it? Husker du was creating delirious melodic bombasts against a faster-than-light ultra-core beat. Their first full-length album was recorded live during One Insane Night in Minneapolis. This is pure Husker and pure power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, as you mentioned, Ryan, has been released a number of times. Uh, it was released in January of 82 as New Alliance 007 on LP. Virus 25 on Alternative Tentacles in the UK sometime in 82. Uh, a cassette version on New Alliance in 1986. Uh, in 1987 on SST on LP. And then on in 88 on cassette and CD on SST. I have, this is from the New Alliance liner notes, Remote Mix by Steve Felstead. I don't... I don't know what that means. Like if he mixed the show, like front of house. Would it mean a remote recording studio? Maybe. Or just just off the board at the, like hooking up a tape to the board? That was my thinking. Yeah, because then we've got assisted by Terry Katzman, Doug Remley, and Wayne B. Case. So I, I don't know who actually recorded this. I'm, my money's on Terry Katzman. He recorded a number of their early shows. Uh, and then engineered by Steve Felstead and Husker Du, so I don't know, maybe it was Steve who engineered mm-hmm. it. Mixed Down, for sure, uh, was by uh, Steve, September 1981, Blackberry Way Studios. Uh, Greg mentions that there wasn't individual writing credits at this point, but the original New Alliance lyric sheet uh, credits the vocalist on each track, which I believe more or less lines up with who wrote the song. Yeah, sing what you write. Yeah. Uh, but it does say on the lyric sheet, all songs written by Husker Du, Reflex Music. Yeah, mine is a second press New Alliance one that does not come with a liner notes, just on the jacket. Yeah. You can see the liners on Paul Hillcock's. Discogs? On, oh, yeah. On Paul's site, yep. Yeah. And all the versions of this album, too. Uh, so, track one, side one. Oh, and as mentioned, Ryan, the SST CD... Uh, does not have any individual tracks. It's just two tracks, side one and side two. Yeah, I listened to it a bunch on the LP this week and then also yesterday on CD in my car. Yeah. And the display, it kind of, you know, it has this setting or whatever where it scrolls the name of the right. song. Yeah. So as it's playing song, as it's playing track one and track two, it's scrolling all of the songs with like a slash yep. in that- between. That's what the digital version does as well, on like Spotify yeah. or whatever. Okay, track one, side one, all tensed up. Uh, I guess, you know, if you were listening to this streaming or on CD, though, it would almost be annoying because of the sh- super short length of the songs. Mm-hmm. If it was breaking it up into tracks. Oh, yeah. You know, and the the start stops of each song and the start of the next one blend so seamlessly together, it would be really hard to... If it had that little digital pause in it, yeah. like like there is on the digital version of Larynx or yeah. Larynx, yeah. that would be annoying for yeah, sure. It would be. Okay, track one, side one, all tensed up, a Bob song. I think, Ryan, one of only three of the 17 tracks that break the two-minute mark and just barely at two minutes, two seconds. Mm-hmm. I think this was a frequent set opener. Uh, uh, it opens the alternate version of Landspeed Record on the Numero box set. 
uh, also on the bootleg of the San Francisco show. Love all the licks that Bob is throwing in. The highlight of this, though, is Greg's bass solo. Yeah, that's what I have, too. You know, Grant's got some great backing vocals, some great little licks from Bob, you know, which is very unusual in a hardcore song to have those little melodic leads. Mm -hmm. But the bass solo is top shelf. Yeah. He was playing with his fingers at this point, too. Mm -hmm. Greg was. Love it when Bob hits an open chord and lets it ring, which doesn't happen too often in these songs. You can hear that trademark shimmer, I think, as he called it, on the guitar. Mm -hmm. I think, what was the guitar? A harmonizer? Or the pedal? A harmonizer? Oh, don't don't ask me. Tube screamer? No, no. Not a tube screamer. (laughs) (laughs) And then before Grant even hits the final shot to end the song, Bob's already playing the riff to the next song. Don't try to call. Two, three, four. Yeah. Yeah. That's a Bob song. Don't try to call. One of their earliest songs, uh, they did do a studio demo of this that's not on the Numero box set, but you can find bootlegs of it. If you listen to that Longhorn 79 bootleg, which is also floating around, I don't know if that's the same recording that may or may not come out at some point. There's probably a few different, you know, early recordings from the Longhorn. Uh, but there is one that's that makes the rounds. You can hear how much faster this song was being played by this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, and how much, when you listen back to the earlier versions, you can hear that Buzzcocks influence for sure. Yeah. I think they've talked about the Buzzcocks in interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's another, you know, blink and you'll miss it solo in this one-minute song too, right? Yeah. Great one-two punch, these two songs, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next song, I'm Not Interested, written by Grant. (laughs) I just keep thinking it must have been really something to see a drummer playing this fast and just belting out the vocals at the same time. With no no shoes on. Yeah. Yeah, that's just not something you see every day. Yeah. And this song has got like a stop on a dime chorus break as well, too. Like, boom, they were so tight, man. They were tight, but it also, all of these songs just sound like they could fall apart at any moment as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, there's a much slower version on the Longhorn 79 bootleg, but this one is way cooler at the land speed speed for me. Mm. Uh, the next one, Guns at My School, written by Bob. Just 55 seconds of blistering hardcore. Barked vocals, blitz fast. Yeah. And then we've got a one, two, one, two, three, four, which is something they were doing a fair amount of at this, in this era. And we go into Push the Button, written by Grant. Uh, Greg just blazing away, you know, playing so fast on that bass. Again, just controlled chaos. And then straight into the toms, and we've got Grant's song Gilligan's Island, which is about the TV show of the same name, which uh, incorporates the song's theme into the to the music you got to have in this era ryan a song about a tv show hey yeah i guess so i guess so it's not very recognizable though no you have to try hard to be be like what is this yeah and then another one two one two three four and we're into greg's song mtc so when you listen to them slower like on the longhorn 79 boot which this is on it's weird they almost sound like a like a different song. Obviously, it's the same riffs, but it's really interesting to hear what a difference those extra BPMs make. <laughs> well, the the way that the music swings 
changes altogether. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It it changes like the way that this speed of hardcore swings is almost like the way that grindcore swings. In kind of like it you swing it almost slows down, you know? Yeah. Where if, if this was mid-tempo, you're actually swinging faster? Grant still has that swing. Like, it's not an oompa. It's, you know, like a lot of it is... Yep. You know? Uh, he has a... Grant has a really distinct style of playing. It has always, to me, been a huge part of the the psychedelic vibe of Husker yeah. Du for me is Grant's drum playing, for sure. The way he works on the cymbals, too. Yeah, if... If people can find those bootlegs, especially the Longhorn horn one or anything from 79, the demos bootlegs, it was really fun just really, really diving into the evolution of Husker Du for me mm-hmm, this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, track eight, Don't Have a Life, written by Greg. The, I really liked this one, you know, with yeah. the discordant noise and Greg kind of leads the song with the bass, uh, which makes sense because he wrote it. Uh, Bob's playing is super discordant and you know, gives this song a really cool feel. It almost reminds me of the Reoccurring Dreams song on Zen Arcade. Yeah, except played forward. Yeah. It it has a very atonal post-punk on speed sound to it, which is very cool. I never appreciated it like I did this week before yeah, in, pre- same. in previous listens. Same for me, yeah. When you listen to the Longhorn version of, of this in particular, you can really hear that arty, like Per Ubu influence that you hear in some of their early stuff, like the Statues yep. single, for example. Yeah, it's so weird. They started, like I, I mentioned this earlier on, they started, they kind of had a pop, kind of a post-punk feel. Then it all got funneled into this hardcore thing, and then they came out heading toward more melodic pop sensibilities. Very interesting evolution. Yeah. And then the side ends with someone going, all right, thanks a lot, which is, I think, one of only two times they address the crowd on this recording. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's the first track on the CD, or side one of the cassette and LP. It's 12 and a half minutes long, if you total it up. I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard the alternate version of Landspeed Record that came out on the Savage Young You Do box set. Uh, but if you haven't, it's awesome. They played these first eight songs in this exact order on mm-hmm. September 5th, 1981. And Ryan, that whole performance is also up on YouTube. So that's, ah. that's really fun to watch. The bands all wearing are all wearing sweatbands. <laughs> Greg's playing that... Uh, I don't know what kind of bass it is. I think it might have been a Gibson. It looks like one. Uh, back then in the early days, Hagstrom or a Gibson, I think. Yeah. Well, it's kind of shaped like a Les Paul, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the Gibson. It has a whole bunch of nut buttons on it, yeah. extra buttons. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's super fun performance to watch. Uh, okay. And then flipping it over, we've got the song Bricklayer written by Bob. This isn't the only track they recorded in a studio off from this era, but it's... I think the only one they released an official studio version of until the box set came out. Yeah, it's on Everything Falls Apart. Yeah, it's just super awesome to listen to in the studio version. Those, It's kind of lost for me in the live version, those big glissandos that they all do together. Mm-hmm. Really reminds me of the hardcore stuff they did on Zen Arcade, like, uh, uh, what's the songs? Like, I'll Never Forget You or uh, Pride. Oh, yeah. You know? Okay, the next uh, uh, track, Tired of Doing Things, is a Grant song. 
I these next few songs are definitely paired together purposely, I would say. The next seven yeah. are just like one. Yeah. Uh, the lyric sheet is hilarious. It just says, vocals, all. And then it says, I'm tired of doing things your way 12 times. That's what the lyric sheet says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it starts out fast enough, but it also speeds up at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is another total Bob Rager clocking in at 53 seconds called You're Naive. Uh, and then Strange Week, a Grant song. Kind of Grant's turn to do a 50-second rager. Yeah, they just repeat Strange Week, Strange Week, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and then Do the Bee, a Grant song, one of their earliest songs. Uh, there's a much slower demo on the Numero box set from May of 1979. Here's what it says in the box set about some of these demos, which were recorded by Bill Bruce, who worked with Grant at uh, Hot Licks. Uh, and Do the Bee is, is one of the demos that he recorded along with Don't Try to Call, Sex Dolls, MTC, uh, Uncle Ron, and Nuclear Nightmare. Do the Bee was an inside joke that originated with Norton's friend, John Clegg, from Three Acre Wood in Melody Lane. He was about 10 years older than the Hooskers and had told Norton and Hart a story about a time he went to a sort of sock hop style dance where he met an attractive woman who had a big beehive hairdo. Clegg asked her to dance. When they took to the floor, the woman's moves were more like convulsions, her arms, legs, and head shaking erratically back and forth. His impression of the display, what Clegg called the bee, stuck with Hart and Norton. It just kind of became a thing we would say when we were being crazy, Norton explained. And Grant wrote a song about it. <laughs> Bill Bruce remembered that while recording overdubs, Norton and Hart did the bee, wiggling and rolling <laughs> around on the floor. <laughs> Uh, and then we've got the song Big Sky, written by Bob, another total Bob, you know, classic style rager where he's just going completely berserk. Mm -hmm. uh, like he must have just come off stage with a screaming headache. <laughs> <laughs> well, not so, not so much of a one that he couldn't do a second set. Yeah. Uh, Ultracore, uh, you know, this is the kind of token hardcore anti-war song. Yeah, yeah. Ultra core. We won't die in your war. Yeah. And then we've got kind of the, we're, we're slowing it down to prepare us for the end of the record. Uh, Let's go die. A little more melody than we've had so far. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, I just think this set was kind of deliberate with all these short, sharp, chaotic blasts that just run together. And then this one, a little more controlled, has some melody. Uh, they did do a stu studio, ver studio version of this during the session for the Statue single, uh, yep. but it didn't come out until Numero reissued the single in 2013. It's also on the box set. That version is super great, really catchy. It is on this. As a bonus track though, right? It's the more on Everything Falls Apart and more, yes. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I guess it came out much earlier. Probably in the 90s, I think, is when that CD version of that came out. We're talking about Everything Falls Apart and More, by the way. Yeah, the Everything Falls Apart and More comp, where you can also hear this song, Let's Go Die. It came out in 1992, mm. Rhino Records. Yeah, I forgot it was on there. Okay, and then uh, they are kind of tenderized us for the last track, Data Control, written by Grant Hart. Total epic, five and a half minutes. Uh, I've always totally loved this song. Just mm -hmm. 
you know, the noisy jam in the middle, Bob's super jagged guitar riffing, his tone, Grant's vocal just sounds, you know, super paranoid with his delivery. It's just, it's just perfect. Greg's holding it all down with this menacing bass line. In a really weird way, this time around, listening to it, for some reason, it reminded me of that SCTV band, The Queen Haters. You know that song that hate, they do? We Hate the Bloody Queen. We Hate the Bloody Queen. I'd like to bomb her off the coast of Argentine. I can't afford me dope. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in the band that covers that on the... Mudhoney does. Mud Honey does? Mudhoney Mud covers the Queen Haters track on the, uh, the O Canada. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it's volume one or volume two, though. Yeah. And then uh, they say, we'll be back for another set, which Mm -hmm. they did do. Uh, You can hear it on the Numera box set. Totally have to hear that if you never have. Side F. I love it. I love it. Me too. It's so great, man. Uh, And there's a cool version of this uh, also on there that was recorded in rehearsal, January 9th, 1980, on the box set. Here's some reviews, Ryan, that I got off Paul's website. Yeah, if you want to spend a year doing a deep dive into Husker Du, go to Paul Hillkoff's website on Husker Du. It's just amazing. Yeah, so here's from an article in Minneapolis City Pages, fall of 1981, by Mike Hoger. He's talking about a, a live show. Bob Mould stands on stage at 7th Street Entry, preparing his Ibanez Flying V. Turning from his Yamaha amp, he slowly lowers the neck of his guitar toward the microphone as cautiously as one would adjust a log in a fireplace barehanded until the silver (laughs) tuning knobs touch the metal. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Feeling no shock, he adjusts the controls and repeats. He lifts up one finger, signaling to the DJ at the back for one more song. Greg Norton and Grant Hart slip into position as Mould glances routinely into the crowd. Norton drops his cigarette and steps on it. Then, with a one, two, one, two, three, four, the calm gives way to a storm as the band crashes out a wall of sound. A wall of sound quite unlike Spectres, quite unlike the Ramones, but a sound that never has a top, is never hermetically sealed. In ten minutes, they will be halfway through a 16-song set. Norton will have let go a few scissor step jumps. Mold will have leaned toward the microphone, growled consonants and vowels into into it, some intelligible words. Hard, Hart will have his modest drum kit shaking like an old washing machine near the end of its cycle. <laughs> <laughs> and then here's later on, he's talking about the Children's Crusade tour. Their homecoming gig on August 15th at the entry was recorded for an album that will be in the stores by Christmas. Not quite. Uh, shortly after. Mm-hmm. originally planned to go on their own Reflex record label. I, I found this next sentence interesting, Ryan. Husker Du has now joined forces with Black Flag's LA-based SST label. Mm-hmm. The record, entitled Land Speed Record, will be a 12-inch 33-speed LP on SST's subsidiary, New Alliance Records. Interesting that they were describing it that way. Back As then. a sub to SST? Yeah. Yeah. It will document Husker Du's fast set, 15 songs, six of which clock in at under a minute. It was actually 17 songs. Yeah. It's probably because, like, they may not have officially been an SST subsidiary, but SST was probably doing some newer lines distro. That's maybe why. Yeah. 
Far from laughable, land speed record is a repository of strength and horror. When Hart yells out, it's all lies anyway in the song I'm Not Interested, you may not know what he's referring to, but you believe him. Local critic Terry Katzman may have described Husker Du's sound best. A familiar guitar hook or riff occasionally surfaces, but before you place it, it disappears. The band exists on the sheer strength of its music, nothing else. Still, some will find Landspeed record affected and unlistenable, dismissing it as poorly mixed white noise. But Husker Du is satisfied. It's the way it should sound. It's distorted. There's no overdubs, no studio trickery, says Mould. There's plenty of mistakes, but it was also a good set. I'm happy with it, adds Hart. Later on, he, he asks them, are you the fastest band in the world? And Bob <laughs> says, well, I've got the fastest looking guitar in the world. <laughs> he goes, oh, I don't know. Who knows? Fastest in town? Maybe. Probably in the top 10 in the world. Here's from uh, the end of the world zine, a Milwaukee zine. 1982. This is a review. I, I saw this band in town a few weeks ago and was really impressed. The album is recorded live, but also doesn't seem to capture the power and kick that they deliver in real life, in quotation marks, real life. Uh, even if, even so, it remains extraordinarily fast and chaotic, similar to speeding trains colliding. If you like your thrash music that is pushed to extremes, then this is for you. The, the word thrash gets used a lot. This mm-hmm. is way before. This is pre-thrash. Yeah. It's weird, you know. It's like when you see the word grunge pop up. Mm-hmm. Way, way, years before any of those bands were even together that you associate with that term. Here's from New York Rocker, 1982, written by Byron Coley. I, I just pulled up a few excerpts. He says, As New Alliance's Mike Watt recently stated in a phone conversation, you don't get a break till the end of the side. I'm with you, Mike. The question, of course, becomes, should we want a break? I think not. And then later he says, they're virtually in the league of America's best three-piece outfit outfits. Meat Puppets, Minutemen, Descendants. Mm, three-piece, hey? Yeah. Yep. My only suggestion would be that they not totally forsake the fallish grind they displayed on their swell reflex debut single as speed for speed's sake, is not necessarily its own reward. Otherwise, I think this is a fuggin' fine... (laughs) I think this is fuggin' (laughs) fine, and I'd recommend it to anyone who likes to squeal hard. Odd Cravings number 3, October 1982. Paul says, A guy who called himself Bri Bing was the publisher and editor of this atypically clean-looking Eugene, Oregon punk scene. Issue number 3 featured this review of Landspeed Record, author uncredited. Husker Du are a trio from Minneapolis, with the usual instruments and all three singing lead. On this EP, they play 17 crushing hardcore anthems in a row, live, and without stopping between songs. Bob Mould displays some pretty tricky guitar action throughout the record, and many of the numbers have really cool three-part vocals. The sound of the live recording isn't that great, but it's worth it to hear such energetic playing. Husker Du's songwriting is really good. Every number a heavy metal indictment of society and culture, often hilarious and horrible at the same time. Their politics are clear and correct, but the band's explosive performance on the 12-inch is never preachy nor pretentious. I won't list song titles, but every track is inventive 
exciting speed rock, and the entire EP deserves to be heard. Bitch in cover and lyric sheet as well. So interesting, you know, that people weren't even using the term hardcore in a lot of these reviews. Yeah, it wasn't a very common term yet, maybe. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the artwork, Ryan. I don't know if it's been ever explained where the where Grant sourced these images from. I could only find reference to them as being archival photos. Yeah, probably from like Time Magazine or something. That's what I think of when I see them. For sure. Yeah, the album artwork is intentionally political. You'll see that in a lot of uh, articles about the record. It's an archival photo of caskets on the front and the back. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that um, the front one is the one that is meant to symbolize, well, I think both are meant to symbolize kind of an anti-war sentiment, but apparently the front cover is the one that I believe the one that shows caskets coming back from Vietnam. And it's an intentional both anti-war sentiment and also apparently symbolic of the fatigue that the band felt in finishing their first national tour. Mm-hmm. And on the on the front, there's it definitely looks to me like it is, you know, the inside of an airplane with some uh, army personnel in the background. Because I think it looks like a bit of a hatch on the right and on the left, like doors into the plane. Yeah. On the back of the cover, though, it's a it's a very different one. It has people almost in like funeral garb with a bunch of caskets in it. These don't look like the same types of caskets. These almost look like those, you know, casket-shaped caskets. And it's in front of an airliner. It may not be a Swiss Air airliner, but it is definitely a Swiss Air staircase coming out. So that, I don't know. Like, are they in uh, Switzerland? The front cover... These are fallen war heroes returning back to the U.S., though, I would say. Super iconic cover art and, like, of the era, for sure, for hardcore. And, like, very alternative tentacles, too. Yeah, it has a John Yates feel, right? Through and through. Yeah. Uh, The insert, Ryan, has some great info on it. Uh, It's got the dates on the Children's Crusade tour listed, and then it thanks, I'm assuming, all the bands that they played with on the tour. So I'm going to tell you some of them uh, does it mention insects yep so i'll get to that but first we start with calgary it says special okay. thanks to calgary the shun the sods and presence now presence you... i've got their singles yeah do you yeah oh yeah for sure yeah uh calgary band uh, compared to devo mm-hmm. uh often uh if there's a cool website called or a blog called the calgary cassette preservation society uh that kind of chronicles Calgary punk rock. Uh, it says on there, some somebody says they sounded like a cross between early pavement and flipper. Hmm. Now, I've never heard of The Shun before. The only thing I could find is uh, a post from Warren Kinsella on his website blasting some dude from named Lonnie James, who I think was in The Shun, for saying that his band put out the first Calgary punk single. Uh People in the comments below Warren's article are saying, you know, he was in the shun and that they were like a crappy bluesy punk band. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, everyone knows that Warren's band, uh, the Hot Nasties, released the first Calgary punk single. Let's see that uh, they thank in Calgary the Sods. Never heard of them, and I couldn't find anything. No, about them. no. 
I feel like they probably had a song called I Hate the Bloody Queen. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were probably lazy sods, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Victoria, infamous scientists, Ryan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Andy Kerr's band before No Means No. And John Wright played drums for infamous scientists for a bit as well. And Kevin Lee from Bum, Ryan. Yeah. The great yeah, yeah. band Bum. Uh, in Vancouver, Insects, do you have their single? Yep. It's oh, really yeah. good, hey? Yeah, it's cool. Three Artie, brothers, I think. Artie post-punk, yeah. Yeah. Paul Phillip and Simon Addington. Almost like a goth feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then DOA Subhumans get a thank you. Seattle, The Farts, Rejectors, M, Refuser Band, and RPA. I don't know anything about... The, the only band I know out of those is The Farts. The Farts, yeah. Portland, of course, Napalm Beach. Great band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like their later stuff, you know. Napalm Beach? Yeah. Not the the trap sampler era? No, not really. Uh, San Francisco, The Lude, Seven Seconds, Blistering Agents, Church Police, and Dead Kennedys. Mm -hmm. Sacramento, Fall of Christianity. Do you know them? No. No, me neither. Chicago, of course, The Effigies, Strike Under, Naked Ray Gun, Six Feet Under. Yeah. I can't wait for that naked ray gun record to arrive in the mail, man. Like wax tracks say that they are sending it in the mail right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, save it for for the uh, top ten, man. There's another reason for you to delay the top ten. Yeah, well, it better arrive. I've not listened to it. Yeah, Madison, Plan Seventeen, and Bloody Mattresses. That's Robin Davies and Bucky Pope. Oh, cool. Pre-tar babies. Yeah. And then in Minneapolis, replacements, man-sized action, whole lot of loves, neglectors, vendettas, dead, lemmings, hipsters, awesome band, uh, 21 and L73. Thanks to Tim Yohannan and Ruth Schwartz, uh, Cheap, or sorry, Creep Magazine, Iconcast Magazine. Iconoclast? Icon no, that's not how it's spelled. Iconocast, no L. Hmm. White Noise Magazine, Desperate Times Magazine. Ryan, you want to hit me with some dead wax? I do. So, and first of all, I was just thinking, as I look at this New Alliance pressing, the, the B-side has got the Husker Du kind of Rorschach symbol. You know where they got that? Do you remember? remember? Oh, I, I can't remember. I can't remember. Can I, you remember, remember well, me? I, I seem to recall it was a, from a photo of a manhole cover. Oh, I think you're right too. Wow. Man, the memory on that guy. Um, I was just looking at it though. And the A side, of course, has everything typed out on it in uh, Firehose, New Alliance Records, Minuteman font, right? Yep. Watts typewriter. Yeah. It has like, so Watt had the Motley Crue dots on his typewriter because he can get them under the Husker Du, hey? He had Motley wicked. Crue dots. Wicked. Cool, hey? Yeah, that's so wicked. It's like a uh, high-end typewriter. Yeah, Remington probably. Yeah. I'm just I'm just guessing. Speaking of typesetting, you know what book I'm looking through now is that Bruce Liker book. Mm. Wow, that is some amazing artwork. Yeah, that, that 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 typesetting that's so cool. I always love getting, you know, one of those record jackets mm -hmm. and feeling like you know, someone physically made it. Yeah. I love those. Yeah. Um, all right, A side, Land Speed Record, Dead Wax is. Baby Warbucks. Mm -hmm. Okay. B-side, Gidget, 
rabbit. Okay. Makes everything make sense now. Yep. It made no sense at all, but now with baby Warbucks and Gidget Rabbit, it makes sense now. Now you've got the data under control. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Brutal. Yeah. Ballot result? Sure. Ballot result. Hit me with your picks. Uh, I think I would go with don't have a life or data control. Mine were all tensed up, don't try to call, don't have a life, bricklayer, let's go die, and data control. Oh, okay. What do you think? I, I My vote's for data control, just because I've always loved that song. Let's do it. I, I feel like it's the wrong song to put on here, because it's not fast. Ah. If we're making a comp tape, though, it would be the easiest to probably splice into the into the tape, though, right? Yeah, you still need to have very nimble fingers on the pause button with this record, though. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've got the fade-in knob, right? Mm. You might have to fade this only, one in. Only if you have a good deck. I didn't have a fancy deck like that. Oh, that's too bad. I don't know how you ever made a comp tape. Oh, with my very nimble pause fi- <laughs> pause button fingers, man. Well, how do you put a live track on with no fader knob? Well, you talk when you're talking fader. Are you talking the level, like just yeah, the level? The recording okay, level. Yeah. Okay. Well, is that a fader? Sure. Well, it's a knob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. I want a break from this show. No more Mojack shows in 2021. I'm out. All right. It's settled. Data control. Data control. Okay. Hey Ryan, thanks to. Uh, Greg for being on the show and Kona Neutron for helping set it up. Awesome. Uh, I want to thank all the guests we've had on in 2021. Yeah. And I want to thank everyone who listened to the show. You know, we're already starting to have people send us, you know, their 2021 wrapped, like on Spotify and stuff where you, it shows you your most listened to podcast. What? Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it shows you, you know, your top artists that you listen to in the last year, and it shows you your your top podcasts. Okay, cool. And people are screen capping and sending us, you know, that we're in their top five. Oh, no way. Yeah. And we better do a good job. Yeah, well, it's great to see that. So so thanks to everyone who listened, you know, helped get the word out about the show, engaged with us online, sent us stuff. And hey, stay safe, everyone. Have a great holiday season, and... We hope to see you very soon in early 2022. Yeah. Amazing, amazing SST releases to come next year. Keep hanging out with us and thanks so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.